I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more riveting reads of the season is the new memoir out today by Corey Hirsch. In The Save of My Life, My Journey Out of the Dark, he offers remarkable insight into contending with mental illness. As he writes in the book, he was uh, realizing his childhood dream of playing in the NHL, winning an Olympic medal, and drinking out of the Stanley Cup. He was uh, plagued with dark thoughts and ceaseless anxiety. He narrates so vividly what this loop in his head would be like, providing a harrowing glimpse into uh, how he tried to drown it out. Sometimes being on the ice, playing hockey worked. But after a while, the cycle would continue anew. He's uh, able to confide in a team trainer and his mother, but as we read in the book, uh, though it's a step, in Mr. Hirsch's case it took a number of years, for him to get properly diagnosed and treated. He is uh, diagnosed with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and and as he'll tell us now, it's been uh, rocky, but he's on the road to recovery. I'll uh, also ask Corey about what it's like to be on the ice, especially as a goalie with pucks coming at you. Some might think having OCD might uh, have uh, helped him focus. The lesson in the book is that there shouldn't be any hesitancy in seeking help, especially for guys. Corey Hirsch won the Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers in 1994, the same year he won a silver medal at the Winter Olympics. He played for many years with the Vancouver Canucks, and since his retirement, he's been a coach in the NHL for elite goaltenders and prospects, and uh, more recently uh, was an analyst with Sportsnet and was uh, the color commentator on the Canucks broadcasts on Sportsnet Radio here. He is uh, National Youth Ambassador for the Centre for addiction and mental health, and the co-host of the Players Tribune's uh, podcast, Blindsided. Visit CoreyHirsch.com for more. This new book is published by Harper Collins. He joined me from here in Vancouver last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Corey Hirsch. Mr. Hirsch, good morning. Ah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Nice to talk to you. Um, there's some. Great stories in the book, and and um, one of my favorites is uh, the one where um, you're a kid and you're you're with your dad. I guess you'd gone to see a hockey game, or you, you you'd gone to the community center, or something like that, and you saw the the kit, if you will, the the well, the goalie gear, the outfit that one wears as, if if they're playing as a goalie, and you really wanted it, and you're begging your dad to get it. Was was being a goalie was that um, something you always wanted to do more than say any other position? Yeah, you know that is such a great story because we don't really remember a lot from our childhood, right? I mean, yeah. it's a long, long time ago for me, and it's so vivid in my in my mind that I can see myself. And I went to those my first hockey practice, and the goalie gear was in the corner, and it was in a clear plastic bag, and they used to supply it. I was six years old, five or six years old, and my dad, I was like, you know, as a little kid, I was tugging on his pants. And, and I'd always wanted to be the goalie. Yeah, I grew up idolizing Mike Palmatier and watching hockey in Canada. I'd throw a tennis ball against the wall, pretend I'd make a save when it bounced back. Um, I loved the goalie. Like, I loved the goalie match. I loved how every goalie could be their own character. Right? Like, they were all different. I find all the goalies today kind of all look the same. And that's just the way it is. But it's unfortunate because back then, you know, you could tell who a goalie was just by, I could tell you who each goalie was just by their goalie mask, right? And it was so cool. So yeah, I, I I never played any other position. I never played forward. Never played anything. I always played goalie. 
You mentioned Mike Palmatier. There's another wonderful story in the book about how, as a kid, your um, your this is a great story about your mom. She'd pretend to call uh, Palmatier's mom and <laughs> and then uh, ask her to put Mike on the phone. And then you'd get on the phone and you'd talk to Mike and and pretend talk to him, right? And it's just a great story. <laughs> it really is. I had the best mom. Like I, I, she was awesome. And um, you know, so it was great. And the cool thing now is, is like I golf with Mike. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. I golf with him. I, uh, you know, him and his brother. I'm actually golfing with them next week. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's it's weird how life comes full circle. But yeah, my mom was. Uh, she was a funny, kind, empathetic lady, and I, I think that's where I got a lot of my characteristics and personality from. You, you talk in the book about the day that your your brain broke, and you give us a specific date, May 6, 1994. But but a lot of these things, you know, um, have, have um, you know, you, you can trace the path back, say, to family. And, and you talk in the book about um, your, your mom and dad and th- their uh, parents and um, how that might have influenced your own, uh, say, journey, if you will. Yeah, well, well, here's this. The OCD, most of my friends that have OCD can remember the day at a time where everything just kind of, I think it's almost like a wire disconnect. Mm. And we're always, you know, most of us are already probably predisposed to worrying and, and things like that. But OCD is a little in, the, in, a, in a different sense where most people can remember the day and the time. And it's just, and it's not like, like you go from zero to 140 in that day. That's what it feels like. Um so some, I'm sure, have had more, you know, creeped on a little bit. But most of my friends, we can tell you, that's where it differs a little bit from other mental illnesses uh, or issues, that um, it's a little bit different in that sense. But, yeah, I was I was already predisposed to being, a, a you know, a kid with a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry. And, um, you know, and I talk about my parents a little bit and their issues, my grandparents and all that. But there isn't a person out there that doesn't have issues in some form or another, right? Brains are not perfect. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think this book hopefully can help a lot of people. And is it useful for you now, uh, the age that you are now, to think back to how your parents were with their parents and, and, and see perhaps patterns, if you will? You know, I, I've looked into that, but here's the thing about that generation and the generation before them. Nobody said anything, right? Mm, Nobody right. talked about it. So, and most are gone now. So I, I don't have that ability to have that conversation with my grandfather or my grandmother or, or their, or their parents, right? So I think now moving forward, my kids' generation will be able to see it a lot better. We'll have lineage, but for that generation, no, I mean, because nobody said anything, right? And if you did, you, you were dropped off at the asylum and you might not be ever seen again. And if you did come out, you're a different person from whatever therapy they, they tried. So, you know, back then, nobody, you know, nobody said a word. And skipping about here, is, uh, in talking about your book, your daughter later on at 13 um, takes you aside and has a conversation with you. And, and so that, I guess that speaks to, to how different things are today than, than before, right? Well, but it also speaks to, and this is what I say in my talk, this is why a mental health conversation is important in our home, right? Mm. I always taught my children, hey, if something funky is going on in your brain, you can come to me with anything. You know, I, I don't care how strange it is. You know, you, you, you know my stuff. And here's the thing about my daughter. Because we always had mental health talks in our home and it was a safe place and she could come to me, I ended up personally myself almost killing myself. 
right? Yeah. Because I didn't know what was going on. I'd never been educated. I had nobody to talk to and nowhere to go. My daughter will never get to that place, right? Yeah. Because we have those conversations in our home and it's safe. And that's where we fail our kids today is, is that we need to educate them. We need to be in our schools. So right there, I mean, who knows if my daughter would have ended up like doing something like me if, if, if she hadn't had that safe place. Uh-huh. I, I don't know that. But I have to think that it's a very real possibility. Most of my friends with obsessive compulsive disorder have tried to take their own life at some point. And they have friends that have OCD that have been successful yeah. at that. Yeah. So basically the way I look at it, education may have saved my daughter's life. And we need to give that gift to other children that are out there. One of the things that, that, that's quite powerful in the book is the way you illustrate OCD and, and how it manifests itself in, in you. Um, you show us, literally, as we read, um, this voice that's constantly in your head, this barrage of uh, thoughts that you're having, that, 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 and it's really your brain telling you the wrong thing. Um, in terms of, say, having to relive that, if you will, writing it out, um, was that tough for you? Yeah, it's very difficult. OCD is very difficult to explain. It's one of the hardest to explain out there. You know, if you say, oh, I'm depressed, well, people know you're sad and mm-hmm. you're tired. and you're. Uh, if you say I've got a ton of anxiety, well, people know what that feels like. And But OCD is it's very difficult because of the content. The content is difficult to describe. And it's, and it's shaming and it's embarrassing. So that's why most people don't get help for it. But the content is all the same, whether it's hand-washing, organizing, uh, harm thoughts, religious thoughts, yeah. uh, sexual issues, it's all garbage. And what it's meant to do is to muddy the waters. It's like uh, it's like it's screaming at me in my ear when it's really bad. Um, and it's just, and it's your brain, you know, trying to help you avoid catastrophe in some form, but it's really not helping you. <laughs> it's yeah. like the little devil on your shoulder uh, is telling you one thing and the little angel on your other shoulder is telling you another thing and they're in an epic battle in the middle of your brain. Well, what will surprise people, I think, as they read your book, Corey, is, is um, that uh, it, it, was, it was more than 10 years, wasn't it, the, from the time that you, you started asking for help and then getting uh, diagnosed and then properly treated. Um, you, you talk about um, how finding the right therapist took, took a while. You tell the story about the, the one therapist in Calgary who, who probably didn't know how to treat OCD and then and then it, it just uh, ruined, say, your life and then and even calls up your mom and, and suggests that maybe all of this is because you're gay. Yeah. No, exactly, right? And that's, uh, and that's the, one of the worst things you can do for someone with OCD is, you know, because the thoughts are just that that's what they are. They're not, they're not, they're not real. They're not true. Um, and that's where the epic battle comes in. And, and it, I don't blame that therapist. I mean, I didn't know where to go, but it all comes back to education, right? Yeah. It all comes. So the way I say it is, okay, well, I've, I've, I've got, let's say I've, I've torn my ACL in my knee. Well, I don't go to the heart surgeon or the shoulder surgeon to get my ACL fixed, right? Yeah. It, that would be ridiculous. Yet we we have no idea where to go. So if you have OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, go to somebody that specializes in those. And I had no idea. I didn't know what was going on. And it comes down to not being educated in high school, not being educated as a kid. And I'll be honest, I, I do have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because 
I go back to the story of my daughter because we educated her. She will never get to that place that I did. Mm. If I'd have known on that day, I believe it was May 6th in the book, um, if I'd have known that day what it was because I'd been educated, I would never have suffered for three years. I would have never ended up on that mountain in Kamloops. I would have never tried to kill myself. But instead, it's all swept under the rug and it's all hidden. And we are doing our children a disservice if we are not teaching them about mental health and we might save lives that way, um, but it's we are failing them right now severely. And, and so you you talk about um, sort of the, the the misconceptions we might have about OCD. Um, one might think, as, as, as uh, b- b- even before we start reading the book, that that OCD might help you as a goalie, perhaps even help you focus. But but that's not how it worked, and and it was really hell, wasn't it? No, it was uh, complete hell. I was a prisoner in my own brain, right? You're trapped. And every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're spent with, you know, something screaming, you know, inside your head that you know isn't isn't the truth about you. And, you know, like I said, the content, it doesn't matter. If it, it, you Underneath people with OCD know what the truth is, right? But on top, you know, OCD is trying to muddy the waters, continually muddy the waters and create doubt. So it it really is a personal living hell because you're 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Your brain never, ever, ever stops. It's a broken record player where you can't take the needle off to fix it. And that's the best way I can describe it. Um, you just have to live with it and hope that you figure it out. And with uh, with every thought comes a tsunami of getting hit with like a, a taser gun. Mm-hmm. of anxiety and it's um it is a living hell and it's why most people at some point with ocd have tried to take it have tried to take their own life because you're a prisoner in your own brain but that's what the book's for is i'm telling people out there that there is a path there is a path to health there is a path to healing that suicide is not the answer there are there, there is a brief period though where, where the 60 minutes that you're on the ice playing um that gives you some relief doesn't it I wouldn't call it relief. I would call it a distraction, mm. right? So um, because the game is so fast and I had to focus and everything's happening, so it gets kind of a distraction from your brain, right? But the second I stepped off the ice, boom, it was back. And and I had it ju- during the games too a lot of times, right? It wasn't like it was gone, fully gone for those 60 minutes, like it was a cure. No, there was. I was just able to put it at bay because I needed to focus on the game, right? But there was a lot of days where I stood in my net almost in tears, um, you know, just trying to survive and and pl- while I'm playing an NHL hockey game. Yeah, and they, there's a, there's an episode in in the book, a couple of them, where you um, in between periods take everything off and and take a shower, which is um, you know I guess impossible in the in to do in the time that one has between periods, right? Well, I made it possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember that was my uh, my second NHL game. It was in, in the Los Angeles Forum against Wayne Gretzky. They scored three goals in the second period in like five or six minutes. And in between the second and third, you know, I, I'm starting to get that panic and, and, and okay, i got to do something. So I would take off all my equipment, everything, everything I had, jump in the shower, 10-second rinse, jump back out, put all my stuff back on and get on the ice, right? Yeah. It was it. There was uh, there was some tough times. There there really were, but it worked. We won. No. Yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. It does not work. 
So what is it like for for, for your teammates? Because, I mean, you, I, I guess a lot of them thought, you know, you were aloof. You, I mean, you, you did that on purpose to, to, to not have to talk to them or get involved. I mean, a lot of them must have thought you were a jerk, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? You look, you don't look like a very good teammate or a very good person. For one, you're in a conversation that you're really struggling to focus on because you've got, you know, let's say you're in a one-on-one conversation and you've got another person screaming in your ear standing beside you. Well, how can you focus on that one-on-one conversation, right? It's almost impossible. Um, you know, you're late for stuff because you're so busy obsessing and so busy trying to figure things out. You're, you know, you, I, I didn't want to hang out in front of the guys because I didn't want them to see anything and figure and, and think I was, something was wrong, right? So, uh, the more time I spent in front of the guys, the more likely it was that they would think, you know, there's something's up. So you try and spend as little time in front of people. But you also, and, and those are the things, you know, you come in, you're disheveled, your hair's all over the place because personal grooming goes out the window mm. because you're so busy obsessing. And, you know, you do, you look like a, 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 a not a very good friend or teammate or person when really you're just trying to survive every day, right? And that's the problem with mental health and having to hide it. You talk in the book about um, how um, some when you were here in Vancouver, um, that, that there were some players who um, had gone to Pat Quinn and, and asked that you be traded. Um, you, you say in the book that um, that uh, it, it, it robs a lot of uh, your mind robs a lot of uh, good that's that's in one's life. Did you bear ill will to, to certain people who might have reacted badly to you over the years and, and not understood, say, what you were going through? You know what? No, I don't, because they didn't know either. And they weren't educated, and it's not on them, right? And they didn't understand. And I didn't tell them, right? So how are you supposed to know? So when you don't tell people and people don't know what's going on, they're going to make up their own assumptions as to why Corey Hirsch is late, as to why Corey isn't, you know, staying after practice, as to why Corey isn't here or Corey just left somewhere, right? They're going to make up their own reasons. And... um because they don't know, and it's not their fault. They weren't educated, and I wasn't telling them anything. So I don't hold any ill will at all against any of them. If if today they came to me and, and said, you know, uh, you know, something derogatory or whatever, yeah, I would. But back then, no, you know, and and most of them, that article in the Players Tribune was almost an apology to mm. a lot of people, my teammates. You know, this is what was going on, and I wasn't trying to be that. You know, that way I was trying to survive. And after that article came out, that was 2017, um, you were able to hear from a lot of former teammates who, who were able to, to, to speak to you candidly about what they thought, I guess, about um, your years together as well as um, what you were going through, right? Yeah, so a lot of them apologized and a lot of them felt horribly for not being able to help or not helping me. And I was like, how could you help me when you didn't even know what was going on, right? And I and I have to and but that's that's how kind and compassionate a lot of my friends are is, is that, but it wasn't on them and they felt some form of responsibility and it wasn't not their responsibility at all. But um, yeah, the compassion and the empathy and the outpouring I've gotten um, from them has just been overwhelming, uh, and I think a lot of them understand. And you know what happens when you come out with your stuff? A lot of other people mm. come up with theirs, right? Right. Because we all struggle in some form. 
the um, you're, uh, you also pay tribute to, to the people who did reach out as a player when, when you were who, who who's probably noticed that something was up and and, and wanted to, to help and and um, I guess that's that's helpful for a lot of us especially guys um, when first we need to ask for help when we need help that's that's the, the key lesson in the book but but what can one do as a guy to help another guy say? Um, it, perhaps help someone. Hey, listen. Be non-judgmental, right? And that's the, I'm not qualified to treat anybody, but I can listen. I can be non-judgmental, and I can let that person know that hey, you can talk to me about anything, man. Uh, we're good. And sometimes when you show a little bit of vulnerability yourself, it gets other people to open up to you. So, for example, like with COVID, right? Mm. If I if I have a, a buddy and I'd be like, yeah, man, COVID really. Uh, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend or wife or whatever, you know, we really struggled through. We had some tough days and, and tough times, and it was, you know, it was hard. It was hard on our kids. Well, that allows the other person to open up too, right? Because then they're going to go, you know what, my wife and I, we went, and my kids are struggling. And it, it just opens up that conversation. When you show your own vulnerability, now you don't have to let out all your stuff. And that's, your business is your business. But to get someone else to open up, you just listen. You be non-judgmental. You let that person know that yeah, they can always come talk to you. You're not going to judge them. And then sharing your own vulnerability helps other people open up as well. In the locker room today, in the NHL today, um, you describe what a different time it was then for you and as it is now. Do you think today um, that players are, are better equipped, say, to deal with mental illness, even homophobia, if you will? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And as far as homophobia goes, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, the league, I think we were always ready. Uh, you know, I, I think there was more of a, a stigma and perception out there, but the guys that I played with in the early 90s, you know, other than maybe maybe two or three guys on the team, I don't know, I can't mm-hmm. say, but for the majority, none of us really, like, we would have welcomed somebody. I would definitely would have welcomed somebody. Today we are much better. I've talked to Luke Prokop a lot. He's the kid that uh, Nashville drafted. I did an interview with him on my pod called Blindsided. Uh, and you know, what a great kid. And, and he, he said that the whole Nashville team, Matt Duchesne, Roman Yossi, all of those guys, they all called him and said, hey, welcome, man. And I think that's, that is so awesome because that's the way it should be. But as far as them getting help, guys are still reluctant, and I don't blame them because there's still an old-school stigma mentality in the NHL. But I will say this, the NHL and the teams do have programs in place, and they do an incredible job. It's guys are still reluctant because there's millions of dollars on the line. It's a quick career, right? But, you know, when we hear stories of of a player that's been struggling or is down and out after their career, and people are like, well, where was the NHL? Where's the alumni? Where's all this and that? Before it gets to that, the alumni in the NHL has probably spent a year and a half trying to help this person, mm-hmm. right? And they have programs, and they do a wonderful job. It's up to that person to accept the help and take the help. That's the other side of it. There's, there's a chapter in, the, in your book, Corey, where you describe a friend, uh, a, a girlfriend, who did die by suicide. It, it, it's harrowing um, to see... Um, the, the story that, that, that unfolds in, in your life, and in, in, this is just a, a few years ago now, right? Yeah, um, it was about four years ago, yeah. Yeah, it, it, you see the hope and promise of a, a relationship. You, you guys really hit it off. Um, this is after your divorce, and then, then you, you share your struggles, 
and then uh, you, you see your, your, your friend uh, struggle a great deal. Why was it important to include her story? And Because you also talk in, in, in the book about the, the, the survivor's guilt, as, as, as you write in the book, that, that it wasn't easy for you as well, right? Well, it, it, no, and it's still, it's still hard to talk about today, but it's important because um, suicide is swept under the rug, right? And it's, people are made to feel shame, they're made to feel embarrassed, they call it selfish, they call it this, they call it that. And we need to bring suicide to the forefront. Talking about suicide does not create more suicide. It's actually been statistically proven that it will put a dent into those numbers. Mm-hmm. Hiding things, shame, you know, embarrassment, that's, how, that's why people don't say anything, and then they end up taking their own life. And the reason that it's important to have her in the book is because she personified everything that, you know, was um, she would light up a room. She was beautiful. She was fun. She was funny. Um, she was, you know, she hit it with a smile on her face, right? But I knew there was stuff going on, but you don't ever think that that's the end result. But before she got to that point, it's not like she woke up one day and said, yeah, I think suicide's a good option, right? Mm. She had suffered for a long, long time and thought that that was the only way out. And she was failed in a lot of areas by the system, uh, when you look back by doctors, by a lot of people. But that still is not the answer. I can understand why she did it, but I don't agree with it of course and that there's always a better answer and a better path you just have to keep searching and keep going um and the impact of it right i want people to know what the impact is like for when someone takes their life you know so just get that help i would do anything to have her back today i would give her every cent i have everything to have her back and i can't right and um you know, that's, I have to live with that. I have to live with the fact that uh, I wasn't able to do more, and that's just what it is. Um, but we need to start talking about suicide and bring it out from the underground and the shadows so that people know that it's okay to have those thoughts. What the solution is, there's a better answer and a better solution than that, that that is never the answer. Yeah, she tells you early on as you meet that that um, the goal really is to live one more day, isn't it, to keep going. And as you write in the book, it's so important because she tries to to reach out to, to, to help, get help, if you will. But as you say, the, the system fails her, um, not just the medical system, but like, um, you know, she was in some financial problem. She tries to get help that way through through um, uh, the bank, if you will, and, and, and um, it just doesn't come through, does it? And And, and it really... I mean, it, it is such a tragedy to read read the, the story of this life. Yeah, well, and it didn't have to go that way, right? Right. And, and we can blame other people all we want, the system and all that. Yes, the system did fail her, but ultimately it was her responsibility. She took her own life, right? Mm. And, you know, I can't, you know, we, we have to understand that too because, but as far as, as what went on, you know, this, this is something that probably could have been prevented uh, if the proper safeguards were in place. And, you know, now we're, we're in a situation now today where you might have to wait six months to see a psychiatrist. Well, if you're white-knuckling it and barely making it through today, six months might as well be an eternity, right? right? Yeah. But the whole point of one more day is that just get to tomorrow. Get, get the help. Talk to somebody for help. Do not stop looking for help. 
But the best thing, some days even for me, when I have a tough day, it's just I got to batten down the hatches and I just got to get to tomorrow because tomorrow is usually a better day. And so th- th- that's the the other great lesson in your book is that, that y- your illness is not curable, but it is treatable, and it's something that you've been able to live with, right? It's very it's very treatable. It, it is something that I still have to work on all the time that I have to be aware of, but there's great advances. There's plant medicine coming that's doing incredible things. There's uh, new treatments in pharmaceuticals and therapies. Like there's so many different avenues that are, are, are out there that you have to use them all. And, you know, I would rather be here. Um, you know, and that's another side of it. We shame people for being on medication. Why? Well, I'm on medication. Like, why do I get shamed because something in my brain doesn't doesn't function properly? Like, how is that my fault? Right? So I could roll the dice and not be here and not be on my meds, and my kids wouldn't have a father. Or I can be on meds. I can be here. I can lead a good life. I can help other people, and I can do other things. So why why shame me for being on medication? Right? It just uh, we don't shame people for physical things when they're on medications. Why do we for their brain, right? I didn't, I didn't sit here and and break my own brain or ask for it to happen. It 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 happens, right? It doesn't make me crazy or anything. It just means hey, my brain doesn't function in the way that maybe someone else does, and I need medication to help it. So there's nothing wrong with that. So I've never been to a hockey game until last year. I went to two hockey games last year. Cool. And um, the, the thing that I notice is, you know, it's loud. There's music playing. The crowd is, is, is revved up. They're, they're shouting things. Um, I, I'm always wondering, um, e- even when I watch hockey occasionally, as I do, uh, what it's like to be the goalie. Because, because it, it um, are you able to tune out all the noise and, 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 and the sort when, when you've got all these pucks coming at you at alarming speed? Oh, well, of course, right? That's what you learn as you're growing up, right? That's why, how you get good. You learn to focus. You learn how to tune out noise. You learn how to how to be able to play the game and what it takes. Um, you, you know, people ask me if hockey did this to me, and I'm like, no, hockey did not do this to me. Goaltending is a stressful position, um, but so is being a lawyer. So is being a doctor. So is being a carpenter, right? It's it, there's We all have stress, and we all have that. Hockey did not do this to me. I was predisposed this was going to happen regardless of somehow. But I will say this, too, though, is that, you know, you learn the ability to focus. Um, I learned, the, you know what, the biggest thing hockey taught me was resilience. Hockey, the reason I'm probably alive is because hockey taught me resilience. Um, and that's the greatest gift I have, and that's why I'm still here. So you're, you're not calling the games um, on, on Sportsnet this season, um, but you're still continuing with your podcast. Is that right? Yeah, so my podcast, Blindsided with the Players Tribune, it's been incredible. It's based, it's professional athletes that have had, you know, similar struggles to mine. Not OCD, perhaps, but bipolar, anxiety, depression. We've had Bubba Watson, Kurt Warner. Kevin Love had a panic attack, the NBA All-Star in front of 20,000 people on the court. So, you know, I do it with Dr. Diane McIntosh. We have the clinical side. We have the athletic side. And we do the interview, and they're just in-depth, powerful interviews of people that have gone through uh, struggles. They are professional athletes, but that there's a better place that they have come out the other side, and they're doing you know, great things in their life trying to help other people know. Would you like to do more broadcasting, say, on television or radio? I, I would, of course. You know, I enjoy the game, but this is my path. This is my passion, right? This is why I'm here. Um, the NHL was great. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. The Olympics were incredible. But all those were a precursor leading up to today, uh, what I do today. And helping somebody is a 
way greater gift than any win I ever got in any league in any sport. And, and so what is the path forward in terms of the work that you'll do now? Well, I do a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So I go and I talk to construction groups. I've become a wellness ambassador for a, a company called uh, ICBA, uh, Wellness and Benefits Company, So and they do a lot of construction. So right now what I do is I go speak. I go to speak to pipeline workers, construction workers uh, in that industry. It's that middle-aged man. It's that masculinity. Um, it's that not reaching out for help, and I'm trying to encourage them to go get the help if they do need it. And what's it like when someone reaches out to you after you talk and, and, and tell you their story? I mean, it must be a burden sometimes, is it? Well, it's you know, it's always incredible, and I'm always appreciative. I really am, because people struggle, and I can listen, and that's what I can do. And it's, it's tough to get back to everybody. Um, I would like to, but it's just nice to know that somebody gets the message and you've helped them, right? That's where I get healing from is helping others. Um, and as far as, as, as other people go, you know what? All I ever ask is to pay it forward, right? You go help somebody else. If I've helped you and you're listening to this podcast right now or the show and I've helped you in some form, you know what? The best gift you can give me is to go help somebody else that needs it. That's a, that's a great thing about this book. As I was reading it, I, I couldn't help but think that you'll help a lot of people with it, and and um, who knows how many lives you'll save. I'm sure if if it's if it's one, it, it was all worth it. Uh, Corey, congratulations on the book, and thanks for your time today. I've enjoyed the chat. Oh, awesome! Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, like I said, go get the help, man. It's worth it if you need it. The book is called uh, The Save of My Life, My Journey Out of the Dark. It's uh, published by HarperCollins. Corey's uh, own website is at coreyhirsch.com. Corey Hirsch, join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.